Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is uh, absolutely fantastic to be with you this morning. And I'll be honest, I've waited for months and months to be able to say this this morning. Take your Bible and turn to the very beginning, the book of Genesis. And we're going to start right there in chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to start today, if you haven't heard already, but we as a church together are going to start on a journey today that's going to begin at creation and is going to take us all the way through to the end of the world. Uh, we're going to be walking through God's Word and be reminded of where we came from, where we're headed, why the world is in the condition it's in, and is there any hope. And those messages are found in the pages of Scripture. We're going to learn about kings and peasants and heroes and villains over the next year together. And most of all... My prayer for us is that we will grow in our love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through His self-revelation of the Bible. And this whole series that we've been planning for and preparing for really for months, it's called Bible 2020. And the point is, uh, as one of your elders, we've wrestled with the reality that about every five years, we think it would be a very healthy rhythm for us to start in January in Genesis walk through the whole Bible in a year and end the year in the book of Revelation so that we get the full, whole counsel of God. And that's what we're going to kick off today. And I, for one, am excited about what God's going to do in us and in us as individuals and as church family. So let, let me just kind of just take a couple minutes. And I've got a daunting task this morning. I'll just tell you, I, I'm trying to, to set up this, this, this plan of where we're headed, this series I'm going to try to give you a little bit of an overview of Genesis 1 through 11. That's where we're going to be reading this week. And then we're going to dive into Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. So you be listening well. We've got a lot to cover this morning to kick off this series. But here's the plan and here's where we're headed as a church family. Part of this is that you begin reading the Word of God on your own following this reading plan that we've set up. Now... There is a plan. You can get this online. It's available in print out here in the lobby. Uh, we have a student version. We have a kid version. And we've received a whole lot of texts and emails about, okay, Pastor Mike, when can I start reading the Bible? Th does this plan start on January 1st? Does it start on January 6th? When does this thing start? Can I just be honest? You can read the Bible anytime you want to read the Bible. If you think somehow we're keeping you from reading the Bible, heaven forbid... The point is this, the plan is set up this way. It's set up is that the message will lead you into next week's reading. So the idea is today we'll cover in overview form, broad overview, Genesis 1 through 11. And then next week, beginning tomorrow, if you follow the plan, you'll start reading in Genesis and cover those 11 chapters next week. So that's kind of how it's set up that way. It involves your personal reading and study of the Word of God. It involves our Sunday messages, like I just said. It'll involve our life groups. Our life groups are set up to be able to build around one of the questions that we study is, what is God teaching you? So as we're each reading through the Bible on our own, we'll be able to come into our life groups and be able to share what God is teaching us as we're walking through God's Word together. We've established multiple study groups that are just going to go deeper into various books of the Bible. You'll hear more about, about those at the end of the service. We have resources online. This is really quick. Incredible resource online for you called the Bible Project. 
It provides five to eight minute little videos of overviews of individual Bible books. So as you get ready to read through Genesis, go watch these short videos, kind of get an overview of that book. It's just one of the many tools that are out there for you. And then finally, behind the message, where we'll dive deeper down into the message, it's going to be on Sunday at 11 is going to be one option. And then Wednesday at 6.30 is another option. If you're looking for a place to connect, behind the message would be a great place to start as we'll go deeper into Sunday's message. All right? So here's the challenge. I know we come from a lot of different backgrounds. You're in different places. Some of you are saying, hey, Pastor Mike, I read the Bible every year. Awesome. To you, here's what I would say this year. Let's read the Bible together as God's family this year. Let's do it together. Some of you would say, you know what? I've tried reading the Bible. I make it for a couple weeks. Then I get into some of this stuff I just don't understand, and I just kind of back off and I don't make it. Let's try it again, and let's do it together. Because in your life groups and in the encouragement of one another, we're all going to be spurred on to be reading through God's Word together. And some of you are going to be able to say, I've never even attempted to read the whole Bible. I'm going to give it a shot in 2020. Let's do that together. And that's the plan, and that's kind of the direction for us to be pursuing this thing together as the people of God. So I'm excited, honored to be able to do this with you. Now, here's what I'm going to start with this morning, all right? I'm going to try to just to whet your appetite, if you will, about the Word of God. I'm going to tackle just a couple questions about God's Word here at the very beginning. What's the big deal about the Bible? I mean, and some of you would would kind of give a quick answer about that. Some of you are not quite convinced, whatever the case is. What's the big deal about God's Word? What does the Bible promise to do in our lives when we give place to God's Word in our lives? What does God promise to do? We're going to take a look at that really quick, and then we're going to dive down into Genesis 1-1 in just a minute, all right? You guys ready? All right. Thanks to both of you for that. Okay. Ed, appreciate you. You're on the money. What's the big deal about the Bible? Now, I want to start this way, and I want to tell you a very quick story about one of my favorite heroes, a man named William Tyndale. William Tyndale was born in 1494. William Tyndale was an ordained Catholic priest. He was born in England. And William Tyndale lived in a day when the Catholic Church held very tightly the Word of God, believing that the common man should not have a copy of God's Word, that we as common people, we're just going to mess it up. So the power structures that were held the Word of God very tightly. The Word of God had never even been translated at that point into the common language of English of that day. And William Tyndale, as a Catholic priest, was burdened by that. He had been truly born again by what he read in his copy of the Scriptures, and he wanted his people to have a copy of God's Word in their own language in English. A Roman Catholic priest once taunted Tyndale with this statement. He said, We are better to be without God's Word than the Pope's. He said, Tyndale, if we had had to choose between the Bible and and the Word of the Pope, we'll take the Word of the Pope. Tyndale disagreed. And Tyndale said this, back to this Roman Catholic priest, he said, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. If God would spare my life, Tyndale said, I will cause the plowboy, the common man, that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you. 
And that became his mantra. He said, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to beat one drum in my life. Tyndale was known as the man who beat one drum. To get the Bible into the language of the common man. It cost him his life. Now, in 1536, several years later, in opposition to the King of England, in opposition to the Catholic Church, Tyndale had translated not only the entire New Testament, but major portions of the Old Testament into clear, common English for the first time in history. The Catholic Church did not like that. The King of England did not like that. And Tyndale was arrested. And for 500 days, he was held in horrible conditions. He was tried for heresy and treason in a ridiculous, unfair trial and convicted. And on 1536, October 6th of that year, William Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake in the prison yard there. Because he was committed to get the word of God in English in your hands and my hands. Now, I say all that to say the fact that almost everyone in this room, and if you don't have one, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you, you have a copy of God's Word in your language available and accessible to you. And many have laid down their lives for that. I say all that to say, let's not take for granted the gift of God's Word by the providence of God that He has placed in your hands and my hands to bury our lives and build our lives in over the next year specifically. Now I want to just go over a few things about the Bible that, that answers the question, the big deal about the Bible. Now we could say endless amount of things about God's Word. I'm going to give you just a few as time allows here. Number one, the Bible, God's Word, is unique. There's no other writing, there's no other book on par with the Bible. Here's what Josh McDowell said. Josh McDowell was an atheist Josh McDowell devoted his life to disproving the Bible, and in his efforts to disprove it, he was overwhelmed by the reality and became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he said about the Bible. He said, the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years in various places, stretching all the way from Babylon to Rome. The human authors included 40 persons from various stations of life. What's this? Authors included kings, peasants, poets, herdsmen, fishermen, scientists, farmers, priests, pastors, tent makers, and governors. Keep going. It was written in a wilderness, in a dungeon, inside palaces and prisons, on lonely islands and in military battles. Yet it speaks with agreement and reliability on hundreds of controversial subjects. Yet it tells one story from beginning to end. God's salvation of man through Jesus Christ. No person could have possibly conceived or have written such a work as the Bible. It is unique. It stands alone. No person could have written this if they had even wanted to write this apart from the inspiration of God. So the Bible is unique. Number two, the Bible is inspired. Now, we, we say this, we know this terminology. Peter makes this very clear in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He says this, But know this first of all. That no prophecy of Scripture, that is the Bible, all of Scripture, is a matter of one's own interpretation. Peter's not talking about how to make sense of the Bible. He's talking about the origin of the Bible. Where did it come from? 
He says, it's not a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy, no scripture was ever made by an act of human will. Nobody got in a corner and said, you know what? I'm going to come up with God's word. It goes on. He says, but it was given by men moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter declares something that you've got to know about the Bible as you pick it up and begin to read it. God is the author through the Holy Spirit. He is the originator and the producers of the Scripture. The Bible declares of itself, when you read the pages of Scripture, you're hearing from the very mouth of God. Makes it unique among all of the books. The Bible says it is inspired from the very mouth of God. See that? Thirdly. The Bible is unashamedly God-centered. <laughs> now you just need to be reminded of this as you read the Bible because our world and the culture we live in wants to make the Bible a self-help book. And if you don't come to parts that seem to help you, and if you don't come to answers that seem to help you in everyday life, which it does, or if it's not all about us, we get frustrated the center of the Bible is not us, it's God. It is God's revelation of himself. The beginning of the Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God. The center of the Bible is Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples. It is a call to praise God. The end of the Bible is this in the book of Revelation. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. The Bible ends with the worthiness and the greatness of God. The hero of the Bible is God Almighty. One of the things I'm praying for me and for us that we lapse into is we begin to believe that the now we'll never say this, but boy, we'll act like it. The world really revolves around me. And if everyone doesn't recognize how the world should revolve around me, and I don't get what I want, when I want, I get frustrated, I get offended, I get hurt. The Bible is a recentering word from God to recenter my perspective and yours that the, God doesn't orbit around me, I orbit around God. The universe orbits around God. The Bible recenters us. It stretches us. It transforms our perspective. The center of the world is God. We exist for Him. He didn't exist for me. The Bible recenters us in that. Fourthly, and very quickly, the Bible is ultimately one story of redemption through Jesus Christ. The Bible's made up of a whole bunch of stories that ultimately tells one story making much of God through Jesus Christ and his story of redemption of mankind. Man's not the center. God's redemption is the center. We're the beneficiaries of it. John chapter 5, Jesus said this. Two religious people of his day, he says, you search the scriptures because you think it is in them you have eternal life. Jesus said, it is these that testify about me. He said, you want to understand the Bible, you have to understand the main character of the Bible is Jesus Christ himself. He goes on and says, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Life is found in the message of the Bible, which is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
The Bible has multiple stories, 66 books, but it ultimately tells one story, and the main hero of the Bible is Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. That's why part of this series, we're going to divide the Bible into nine different segments. We're starting off with this segment, and it's this one, that Jesus is the Creator. We're going to see throughout this series, Jesus is the Deliverer, the Conqueror, the Shepherd King. As all of these stories ultimately point to King Jesus. Now, let me illustrate that for you very quickly. For Christmas, I got my family a puzzle. And I say, wow, you're a big spender, Pastor Mike. Well, I got more than that. But I got him a thousand-piece puzzle. Now, I want to show you one of those pieces of that puzzle. There it is. Now, can somebody tell me what that puzzle's all about from that? Nope. You know why? Watch. Because all you have in that in puzzle is one piece. One piece by itself will not give you the whole picture. That's the same way it is in reading the Bible. If you take one story or just a few stories and in isolation you read those stories and think you understand, you don't understand until you see them in light of the whole picture. That whole puzzle piece, that is one piece of a bigger picture. There it is. It's the city of Las Vegas. How about that? The point is you don't understand fully the individual stories. All my life, some of you have been brought up in churches and you've been taught the Bible stories. Wonderful. We want those Bible stories. But you only understand them in isolation, not part of the bigger picture. Yes, David killed Goliath. But the point of David and Goliath is not, man, I can go do anything I want. I'm so strong. The point is there is a greater David coming. And the greater David is named Jesus, and he's conquered our enemy, who is Satan. It is a foretelling of Jesus to come. Does it have practical help? Yes. But you've got to read it in light of the big picture of the whole of the Bible. And that's what we're attempting to do together. The Bible goes on. It promises some things in our lives. What, what, what does the Bible say it's going to do in mine and yours life? And I, I, I want to do this quickly for sake of time. But listen to some of these promises of what God says he'll do in our lives as we read and meditate and pray through and obey his word. Psalm 19 verse 7 through 9 says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The phrase restoring the soul here is the idea of putting back together that which is fragmented. There is a restoring of the soul that takes place when we pour the word of God into our lives and we meditate on the word that's come from the mouth of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. There is wisdom in life that comes from the word of God. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. There is a joy that comes to your heart as you bury your life in the word of God. He goes on, he says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 10, he says, they, the, the word of God, the commandments of the Lord are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The Bible promises to you and me. If we will read and study and meditate and listen. Give place to the word of God in our lives. The Bible says there is great reward. Great reward. The Bible goes on. 
Jesus said it this way. Jesus said to his disciples and to us, sanctify them in the truth. This is his prayer back to the Father. Your word is truth. In other words, Jesus is saying the tool that God uses through his spirit, sanctifying us, making us more and more like Jesus, is the word of God. The word. Jesus says it's the tool. Now let me give you a little side note quickly. This is going to help some of you, all right? Now hang with me. God doesn't do His work in us quickly. I doubt there's going to be mornings, and if there are, let me know about it. We need to talk through it. But you open up your Bible and you begin to read, and the angels of heaven start to sing. That may not happen, and I'm telling you, it's probably not going to happen. But here's the promise of Scripture. That by faith we take Jesus at his word as we continue to bury this truth in our life. He makes us more and more like Jesus. Here's what Paul David Tripp says. He says, personal heart and life change is always a process. It's a slow one. This is where I think big drama Christianity gets us into trouble. You see, the character of a life is not set in two or three dramatic moments. Looking for the next big thing. Oh, I need the next big thing. Oh, I I need the next big high. No, no, no. You see, the character of life is not set in two or three dramatic moments, but in 10,000 little moments. As we bury our lives in the word of God and worship and fill our hearts, we are transformed. Because Jesus promised, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. A couple more and we'll be finished. We'll jump into Genesis really quickly. Paul said to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved. There is a diligence about the word of God. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, continue in the things you have learned and been convinced of. Listen, one of the temptations for us in the Bible Belt is to think, oh, I know the Bible. Oh, I got all that down. I know all the stories. No, you don't. You don't. It's living. It's active. Paul says, continue, Timothy. Press on, Timothy. Have a heart of diligence. Have a heart of learning and growth, continuing in this word, in this book. And then finally, he said, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It is through God's word that I know how to pray. It is through God's word that I know how to be a godly husband. It is through God's word that I know how to be a godly businessman. It is through God's word that I know how to walk with God. It is through God's word that he teaches me. Give place to the word of God in our See that? That's all introduction. All right, you ready? Ready to go? Final prayer is this. A couple of us meet every morning, every Sunday morning around 9 o'clock, and this has kind of been my prayer for us going into this week, is there's one final verse. I just want to pray this over you. When I, when I was in seminary, I was discipled by a man. His name was Clyde Cranford. Clyde Cranford invested in seminary students. That's what he did with his life. And on the front of his Bible was one word wasn't his name. It was one word. It was the word tremble. Tremble. Where'd you get that from? I'm going to read this. I'm going to say a prayer for us, and we're going to dive into Genesis 1. Isaiah 66, 2 says this. For my hand made all these things, God says. 
Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit. And who trembles at my word. You pray with me for just a minute. Father, I ask you as we kick off this series, Lord, and we even dive into your word this morning, I, I pray that there will be a spirit of humility and teachability and repentance and learning and growth. But God, I pray that we will approach the living word of God with trembling. It is the word from your mouth. And God, I pray with that awe and that wonder we are changed. And you make us more and more like your son for your glory. For our good, in Jesus' sake. And all God's people said together, Amen. All right, well, take your Bibles if you haven't already. Look in Genesis again. My goal is to give you about a five or ten minute overview very quickly. Genesis 11, Genesis 1 through 11. You say, yeah, right, you're crazy. We'll do our best. And then we're going to look really close at Genesis 11 to get you set up for your reading and then press on into the next part of the series. So Genesis 1 and 2, you'll start there this week if you haven't already. Uh, you'll begin reading. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. The book of Genesis, the word itself means origins. So you've got to begin a Bible series in Genesis 1-1. So look there with me if you haven't already. The Bible says this, Genesis 1-1. Foundation of everything else that's to come in the Bible is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now stop right there. That is a comprehensive statement. Often in the Bible, the Bible will say a huge comprehensive statement like that. And then what follows is an explanation of it. That's what you have in Genesis 1 and 2. The beginning is God created. The word created is the word bara in the Hebrew, which means God created everything out of nothing. God spoke and everything that is came into being. The heavens and the earth and everything that is. By God who existed before all of creation, he spoke everything into being. In six days, he created all matter. He created light. Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says, the literal translation of Genesis 1-3, light be and light was. God said, light be and light was by the power of his spoken word. The heavens and the earth were created. Planets, suns, and stars. All living creatures were created on day five and six. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Mankind was created. Marriage and the family and all that we enjoy was created there. Look with me, verse 27 of chapter 1. The Bible says, God created man, mankind, in his own image. Unique is man in the image of God. He created them. Male and female, distinct from one another, distinctly bearing the glory of God as male and female. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So you have there in the creation account, unlike any account in the world, the story of creation. And I'm going to give you a few big ideas through this summary. And here's your big idea number one. God created all things good and for his glory. So God surveys his creation. 
he looks upon all he had made and he declared that it was good. It was very good. Humanity, animals, light, the cosmos, everything that he had created, he had created good. Until you get to Genesis 3 and things change. So you come to Genesis chapter 3 and the Bible tells of what is known as the fall. Nowhere else in the world do we have an explanation that tells us why is the world in the condition it's in? Why is the heart of man the way the heart of man is? Whether that's in East Tennessee or whether that's on the other side of the planet. Because there was a fall. There is a rebellion and a rejection from Adam and Eve. And the Bible tells us about that. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are in perfect relationship with God. They're in perfect relationship with one another. They're in perfect relationship with creation. And they're in perfect relationship with themselves. God commanded them. You know this, Genesis 2, from every tree of the garden. You can enjoy. It's all yours. It's given for your good. But from the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2. Then you come to Genesis 3. Do you know what happens? Satan appears in the garden. Say, where did Satan come from? We'll talk more about that later. We'll get there. Explains who Satan is, where he came from. Satan shows up in the garden in the form of a serpent. He says to the woman, Genesis 3 verse 4, You surely will not die. Stop right there. First temptation, first lie of the enemy was to bring into doubt and to question what God had clearly said. And by the way, that's not changed today. If the enemy through whatever means can cause you to doubt the word of God and its truthfulness and its veracity in your life in any way, then everything else will follow from that. God said, you're going to die if you eat that because that's not my plan for you. Satan said, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. God didn't really mean it. God was joking. He didn't really mean that. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her. We've gone over this before. Where was Adam? Right there. Passively standing by, allowing this to happen. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked. Or as my daughter used to read in our time of studying the Bible together, knacked. They were knacked. That's naked. You won't forget that. You'll be reading this week, you'll knack. That's so funny. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves lawn coverings. This is a ridiculous scene here. Adam and Eve in perfect harmony, perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with creation, are now cowering in the corner of the garden with these ridiculous fig leaves trying to cover their own sin and trying to cover their own guilt. Everything that flows from this through the rest of the Bible, through the rest of history, until you get to Genesis, or Revelation 21 and 22, catastrophic consequences of the fall into sin. Twisting, distorting, tainting everything as God had intended it. Sin separates, sin spoils, and sin spreads. They were separated in their relationship with God. And it spoiled the relationship between Adam and Eve. 
It had separated Adam and their family. The family was spoiled. Later, Cain's going to kill Abel. Sexual relations were spoiled. Polygamy follows. Adultery, homosexuality. The relationship to creation was spoiled from being a steward of the universe and the earth. They now in toil and thorns and thistles work the ground. The relationship with their selves was spoiled. Guilt enters the picture. Shame enters the picture. Sickness and pain and death all as a result of sin. You say, Pastor Mike, man, I was reading the book of Revelation trying to end my Bible reading from last year and I came across this verse in Revelation 21 or 22 and I know I'd read it before, but there is a day, the Bible says, and the curse will be no more. None of us have ever known existence or known a world apart from the curse. We can't imagine it. But in Christ, there is a day coming when the curse will be no more. Come, Lord Jesus. So you see the catastrophic effects of all of this that took place here. It spreads. Genesis 6 says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Generation after generation after generation after generation. Born little sinners. They didn't learn it. They were born that way. We're born that way because of the sin of our forefathers. We're born into sin. Romans says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans Genesis, uh, Genesis 6 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's God's indictment of all of mankind at that point. So here's your second big idea quickly is this. Sin corrupts all good things. Sin corrupts all good things. I mean, you're going to be reading through the Bible, you're going to be reading the, the, the bliss that was the Garden of Eden, and all of a sudden everything changes. The catastrophic effects of the fall and sin entering the human race. And you see that played out in the rest of the Bible. You say, Pastor Mike, is there hope? As you're reading and as we're walking through Scripture, throughout the mess of sin and the mess of brokenness, there are continual glimpses of God's grace. Even here in Genesis 3, right after the fall and right after Adam and Eve's sin, they're cowering in the corner of, of the garden trying to cover their own sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, we don't take time to read it, God says this, Adam. Where are you? God pursues. Aren't you glad? And then it says God makes a promise. Genesis 3.15. He says to Eve. Oh by the way. Everything's messed up. Sin has spoiled the whole world. But there is a day coming. From you Eve. One is going to come. Who will crush the head of the serpent. Eve. Your great 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 grandson. The Messiah is coming who will make everything right. There's a promise and then there's a provision. In Genesis 3.21, Adam and Eve are over here trying to cover their own sin with their own loin coverings. Which, by the way, we all try to do. It may not be loin coverings. It may not be fig leaves. We try to cover our own sin. And the Bible says this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and he clothed them. A picture that you will never be able to cover your own sin. But in God's grace through Christ, he will cover your sin. He will clothe you in righteousness by faith. Right there in the middle of the sin-torn world. There's glimpses of grace. And you get to Genesis chapter 6 quickly. 
There is a global flood. The world is in such a condition. You say, man, it must have been really bad back then. No different than today. You say, man, I watch the news and I see all that's going on in the world. It, it must be worse. It, it's no different. The heart of man is always wicked. The heart of man left to himself will always rebel against God. So there's this global flood. Genesis chapter 6 verse 7. God says, I will blot out mankind whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals, creeping things. I'm sorry that I've made them. God says, I'm going to wipe it all out. I'm going to bring righteous judgment. You say, is that just and is that righteous? Every human being on the face of the earth deserved judgment, wrath of God. It was a just wrath. He's going to wipe out the face of the earth. In the middle of that is God's grace and it's a provision. He says, Noah, go build an ark. Go make a provision, a place of, of haven, a place of protection. And whoever will by faith trust the provision of God will not face the just judgment that they deserve. Another picture of grace. Is it all about a boat? Is it all about the ark? Is it a true story? Yep. But it's a picture of the ark that is to come named Jesus Christ. Where we run for protection. And where we run for redemption. So the earth is wiped out. You can read all that. Say, Pastor Mike, do you really read? Do you really believe the global flood story? Jesus believed it. And you know what? I'm on team Jesus. The Bible declares it. There was a global flood and the world was destroyed. And when the flood waters had rescinded, coming out of the ark was Noah, his wife, and their three sons and their wives, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They come out of the ark. There's only eight people remaining on the earth at that point. And every human being that has ever come has come from Shem, Ham, or Japheth, the descendants of Noah. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 8, 9, and 10. In Genesis chapter 10, you come to what's called the table of the nations. And you see this scattering of peoples all over the globe that have all descended from these three sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They cover the globe. That's how chapter 10 of Genesis ends. You've got all these nations, all these tongues, all these tribes in the rebellion covering the earth. Now, here's the question that's going to set up very quickly Genesis 11. I'm going to read a few verses and make a couple applications, then we're done. What happened to scatter the peoples around the globe? Where did all the nations around the globe come from? Where did all the languages around the globe come from? Where did French and English and Swiss and all these different dialects and nationalities come from? The Bible, what's this? And the Bible alone answers that question. Genesis chapter 11. I'm going to read a few verses. Hang with me, all right? Now this account in Genesis 11, this is interesting. When you read this, this takes place somewhere around 100 years after the flood. It's hard to imagine that when you read these events in Genesis 11, Noah's still alive. Some of those that actually experienced and walked through the flood can still give first-hand testimony of God's judgment, and yet the world still rebels. Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the earth, the whole earth used... The same language and the same words. Now before this scattering, everyone spoke the same language. The Bible says everyone spoke the same words. Was that repetitious? No. It's saying they had the same language and the same dialect. You know, people have different dialects, right? We all use words that nobody knows what we mean. We're still speaking English. When our family first moved to Las Vegas, we said, Hey, we're fixing to go out to eat. 
And everybody's like, fixing to do what? What does fixing mean? And no idea what that meant. That's a dialect. In this day, everyone spoke the same language. They had the same dialect, completely unified in their communication. Verse 2. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. That's modern-day Iraq. Hearing a lot about that in the news, right? All the way back to the beginning. And they settled there. Is there a problem with settling there? Yeah, there's a problem with settling there because God had spoken through Noah, you are to go scatter and fill the earth and enjoy all that the earth is. You're not to clump together, you're to scatter. And they said, no, we want to settle down there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and we'll burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, they used tar for mortar. Human ingenuity is incredible, image bears. Verse 4, now I want you to look at verse 4 and I'm going to make three comments really quick. They said, this is the voice of the world. This is the voice of fallen culture that you and I live in. Watch. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city. Let us build for ourselves a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad like God called us to be over the face of the whole earth. Three things they're desiring there. And here they are. Number one, they desired a city. They had a social goal. The problem was their goal was not God's goal. God said scatter. They said no. We're going to settle and we're going to build a city. They determined they were going to do what God wanted to do. They were characterized by self-will. You know what God says? Here's what we want to do. And by the way, that's what lurks in the heart of every one of us. That's the message that's reinforced every day in the culture we live. Secondly, they said this build a tower. Was it a tower for protection? Nope, didn't have any enemies. It was a tower, they said, that's going to reach into heaven. What does that mean? We will have our own way of worship. We will have our own means to reach God. All false religion traces back right here. We will worship who we want and how we want. Here's what they had. Self-made religion on my terms. Every culture, every nation, and in the heart of every human is this idea. No, no, no. I know there's a God. I can't get away from that, but I'm going to worship him on my terms and my way. Thirdly, they had a psychological goal. They said, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We, watch, we will determine our own identity and who we are. It's up to me. Self-determination. God, it's not about you. It's not about your will. We will be whoever we want. We will do whatever we want. We will worship however we want. And this is the condition of every human soul. This is the condition of every culture. This is the condition of every human society. And that is, by the way, why Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. Not self-will. You must take up your cross. It is the cross that you will bear. It is the reproach of the cross by which you will worship me, not your own. And follow me. You will find your identity and fullness of life as you walk in submission to me, Jesus said. Exactly opposite of what they were seeking at the Tower of Babel. 
Bible goes on quickly. Verse 5, and we'll wrap it up with this. I'm going to ask the praise team just to come on up and begin to play. We're going to kind of move into a time of response. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. What do you mean the Lord had to come down? The reason that's in there is that in response to all of their human efforts to ascend to God, no matter what they were able to do, God still had to come down. God still had to condescend because of the infinite gap between man and the holiness of God. No matter what we do. God came down. Verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, there is one people, and they have the same language. All this is what they began to do, and now that which they purpose will be not impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they will understand not one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. That's where we get that word from. Because there the Lord confused their language over the whole earth, and there the Lord scattered them abroad. That's why today your world that we live in is covered with every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every people. And they are living in rebellion and self-will, self-made religion. I will be what I want. And by the way, that's exactly where you were before God sought you. So this passage ends... The story ends with God reversing what man in his pride tried to build. And he said, Pastor Mike, is there any hope? If you keep reading in chapter 11, you find a genealogy. And it traces a family line starting with a fellow named Shem. Pastor Mike, why is that there? Why is there hope in that? God says, in the middle of the fallenness, in the middle of the world that is in rebellion to me, he said there's a fellow named Shem, Noah's son. From Shem, there's going to be a man named Eber. We get the word Hebrew from his name. Later on from him, there's going to be a son named Abram. And God will change his name to Abraham. And God will set apart a people. And from that people will be the word. From that people will be a reflection of who God is. And from that people will come, watch this, a Messiah whose name is Jesus. Right here in Genesis chapter 11 is a glimpse and a picture. The Messiah is coming. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is our redeemer. Final thought, and we're done. Anything wrong with a city? Anything wrong with seeking God? People of Babel were seeking on their own terms. You come to Revelation chapter 3. And the people of God who by faith have trusted the Messiah. It says the people of God, watch this, receive a city, a new Jerusalem by faith. It says God will dwell with us forever and ever. You don't need a tower. It's by faith. God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it says he gives us a name and an identity. We will be kingdom and priests unto our God forever and ever and ever. All that they sought of their own, they did not get. We receive as the people of God by faith and trust the Messiah, King Jesus. The Bible is ultimately about King Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bow your head. Father, thank you for this time. Father, I pray our response is worship. I pray our response is obedience. I 
pray our response is a humble pursuit, trembling at you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand? Our team leads us in response.